I'm Steve Croft. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Steve Croft. You look like that guy that does that 60 Minutes thing on TV. Steve Croft. Yes. Of all the problems Steve Croft won't be opening right now, 60 Minutes this season. Oh, it's unbelievable. But tonight, we are going to look back... It's so insane. ...at 30 years of Croft's most memorable stories. What did you plead guilty to? Racketeering. Mary and Joseph. Congressman? Congressman? The investigations. Do you mind if I ask you a couple of questions? Steve. The Obama interviews. What else you got? Can you hear me now? His love for an outrageous character. It's not exactly legal, no. <laughs> and his elegant writing that could always unpack the most difficult story. My favorite stories are government stories where you say you're not going to believe this is going on. It's been going on for a long time and nothing has ever been done about it. Is everybody rolling? Set! We have speed? Go! On the eve of our 52nd season, 60 Minutes salutes <laughs> one of the best to ever tell a story on Sunday night, Steve Croft. The good news is, we're not cops. Well, <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> the bad news is, is we're 60 Minutes. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you, that's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love or visit www.pacificlife.com. 60 Minutes opens its 52nd season later this month, and for the first time in 30 years, it'll be without Steve Croft. Without his eye for the outrageous, without his willingness to unpack the complicated stories most reporters would tell you are impossible to tell on television. Most of all, without his elegant, spare writing that serves the story without ever calling attention to itself. As Croft, and everyone here just calls him Croft, says, it's always about the story. What's the headline here? Have you ever seen anything like this before? Everybody in town is talking about it. Why? Why? Why didn't anybody anticipate that? So you had two eyes. Really? Was it dangerous? Were you angry? Did you enjoy this? What's going on? We had some questions of our own when we talked with the 74-year-old, newly retired correspondent, at his waterfront home on Long Island's Peconic Bay. 60 minutes. Mm -hmm. People do not walk away from this, Steve. And there's a lot of people want to know why. I want to know. I try to talk you out of it. Right. I'm surprised. How can you walk away from this? I, I've always felt like um, I've had great amount of respect uh, for people who have left their professions when they were on top. And um, I felt that, that this was the time for me to, to go. 
um, that there were other things that I wanted to do, that I still had the energy to do it, that I still had the uh, interest in doing it. 30 years ago, when Croft joined 60 Minutes, giants roamed the halls. Hold it a minute, goddammit! Mike Wallace and Morley Safer, Ed Bradley and Harry Reasoner. The best that can be expected is... Croft was a veteran of the CBS London Bureau and the news magazine West 57th. But 60 Minutes was a whole new league. Was the red carpet out for you? Did you have a tough time in the beginning? Well, I think everybody who comes to that show as a correspondent has a tough time at the beginning. It's very intimidating. And but, but didn't you once say that there, that there was a, a hazing period for you? It was more a period where I was like a junior partner in a law firm. Ah, there you go. That's the way it felt. You know, if you were fighting over a story, there wasn't any question (laughs) who was going to get it. I was not going to get it. Right. That's kind of hazing. We all go through that. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't like a level playing field. Hold it. Hold it. There was seniority involved. And the place was very competitive, you know, and I never quite felt like I made it. In part because in some ways, if I did really a good story, it just created more antagonism, particularly for Mike. Oh, come on. Keep going. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he would be jealous. And he would be jealous. What the dickens are you insecure about? I really don't understand. And then he tried to steal the producer. The produ- Well, what about, um, didn't Dan rather sort of give you a warning? He said it's like a jungle, and there's a lot of big cats over there, and they can just, with one swipe of the hand, you'll be limping for like a year. <laughs> Welcome to 60 Minutes. Welcome to 60 Minutes. And he was pretty much right. <laughs> he was pretty much right. Very early on, you were doing stories that are iconic stories for 60 Minutes that people want to see again and again, like Chernobyl. That Wasn't that your very first season? Yes. And you just walked into Radioactive City. (laughs) I remember watching that and thinking, is that guy crazy? The only sign of life is the music, piped in continuously to keep the decontamination crews that have to be here from going crazy. It's hard to imagine a nuclear accident worse than this one, right? It's hard to imagine. In some hot spots, we found radiation levels a hundred times normal. Were you ever nervous about that? I wasn't nervous because we had done a lot of research. People don't appreciate how much research goes into our stories. Oh, yeah. Not just on whether we're going to be in danger or not. but That's what makes them so good. And you're sure of the mileage? We, uh... Before he was a familiar face on Sunday night, Croft went undercover in Houston to explore the classic scam of rolling back the odometers on used cars. Uh, we'll make a deal. Okay. okay. He met Bill Whitlow, who was a master of the art. He was a crazy <laughs> Texas character, and everybody in the used car business brought him to Bill, and Bill would roll back the odometers. This is not exactly legal, right? It's not exactly legal, no. <laughs> he laid out his whole scam for us. I want to show you one thing. And when it was all over, I, th- I thought we needed to give him uh, a heads up. See that picture? There's a TV camera back there. Yeah? We've been taping this whole thing. Well, all right. And then one of the great lines, there's the good news and the bad news. Right. The good news is we're not cops. Well, <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> The bad news is, is we're 60 Minutes. A few years later, a 60 Minutes team talked with Bill Whitlow in federal prison. He was no longer unperturbed. I think he could scrape the bottom of hell with a fine-tooth comb and never come up with a man like Steve Cross. 
Croft keeps a needlepoint pillow with Whitlow's words on his couch. As a badge of honor. As a badge of honor. <laughs> my occupation has been crook most of my life. You like that attitude. You know, you've interviewed a lot of grifters and scammers. Conmen, yeah. Yeah, conmen. You made your living ripping off little old ladies. Little old ladies and, and men. Both. I wasn't, I wasn't sexist that way. How much money did you steal from Medicare? About $20 million. $20 million? Yes. Was it easy? Real easy. What category of person do you most like to talk about, interview, write about? One of my favorite interviews was John Martirana, who was a hitman for Whitey Bulger, who killed something like 26 people. A lot of people would say you're a serial killer. I might be a vigilante, but not a serial killer. Why was that your favorite? Because he was just really interesting, and he came to play. These are the rooms you don't want to go in. You could engage him, and he would talk to you. That's the trap door for the cellar. Anybody go down there and never come up? I think so, yeah. He was very honest about how he got in the business, and he just kind of considered it a job. Okay, everybody settle. We have tape rolling, Steve. Whatever you settle. Okay. Prost's best-known interview, and perhaps most historically important, came on Super Bowl Sunday, 1992, when the then-governor of Arkansas, Bill Clinton, and his wife Hillary tried to save his presidential campaign from a tabloid sex scandal. Governor, who is Jennifer Flowers? Well, uh... They wanted to go somewhere that had a good reputation right. and answer the questions. And one time. They wanted to answer the questions once. One time. It so is. there was a lot of pressure to keep asking questions. I want to go back and ask you the question again. Who is Jennifer Flowers? I met her. Uh, and um, they wanted Hillary to be part of it. But she came on to defend him. She did. You know, I'm not sitting here as some little woman standing by my man like Tammy Wynette. I'm sitting here because I love him. It is said that this interview saved his presidential campaign, but it also almost killed them. Oh, right, with a light falling down? Yeah. Can you walk us through what you're seeing? A wall-mounted lamp, high-powered a television lamp. Like One of the, these things? Right. It just sprung off the wall. Jesus, Mary and Joseph. It sounded like an explosion. I didn't know what had happened. But she jumped, and it really did come close to her. Do you remember what she said? Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. It's not what what I would have said. (laughs) That's what I would have said either. (laughs) So you've covered politicians, celebrities, athletes, eccentrics. Con men, mobsters. Were you ever scared? Um, No, Uh, because, first of all, you're in a room like we are right now where you have... uh, Lots of people here. Protection. The GOC, right. <laughs> Your producer's protecting <laughs> right. you. So I was never really worried that, that I was going to come under any uh, uh, physical threat. But I was nervous the whole time I was in Beirut. And I spent a lot of time in Beirut. But instead of protecting him... The- I was nervous the whole time I was in Zimbabwe where we had done a really tough interview with Robert Mugabe. Would you be happy to see all the white people leave Zimbabwe? No, I've said so out of anger. Can you just get hold of the police? Say that. And then we were followed by the secret police, and there was a group of marauders that came over, and I was pretty nervous. Yeah, <laughs> the craziness of the craziness. All of this. It I was know. fun. You know, it was the ad- huge adrenaline rush. As uh, Churchill said, the most exhilarating moment in life is to be shot at without result, and it's true. <laughs> hey! Croft insists that covering politics is never exhilarating for him. You guys are too fired up. So it's ironic that his most frequent interviewee was a politician. You think the country's ready for a black president? Yes. 
this whole area. For 10 years, beginning in 2007, from the campaign trail to the Oval Office, he covered Barack Obama. Good to see you, sir. I think you interviewed him 16 times. Mm -hmm. It's a lot. Did you have a relationship? The only thing we had was a reporter-subject relationship. Have there been moments when you've said, what did I get myself into? <laughs> I think he knew that we were not going to burn him, that we were going to ask tough questions. Afghanistan, health care bill. The unemployment problem. This is a tough business. I just want to say that... But we were going to let him answer them. And you ran them. Well, we edited them down. But we were really careful to be able to distill what he was saying. And I think he appreciated that and was comfortable with it. What else you got? Okay. Well, there's, look, there's a lot of... Everybody would come up to me in the White House and would say, this is the only time in these interviews when you see the guy we see every day. And in all the interviews we did with him, I never once saw him lean on an aide or ask for a clarification or am I saying this right or anything. Because he understood the issues. I don't think I've ever interviewed a politician quite like that. You interview lots of people in Congress. Some of them can't answer anything without four aides in the room, uh, you know, stopping them and saying, well, that's not exactly right. And, you know. Did you ever feel that you should have pushed harder? I don't think it was a matter of pushing hard. I think that that criticism came from the fact that I didn't get angry with him. And at the time that I came up and started doing interviews with the president, there was a long track record of how people did interviews with the president. You show uh, the office respect. Yes, you showed the office respect. Steve, asked and answered. Let's move on. <laughs> okay. Old school um, standards come naturally to him. You grew up in Kokomo, Indiana. Kokomo, Indiana. What do you think you brought from Kokomo? that perhaps makes your sensibility different from your East-West Coast colleagues? Well, I think that I still think of the Middle West as being the heartland of the country. Different values, uh, very religious for the most part, uh, or more religious than... Uh, East-West Coast. Than the East-West Coast. And uh, a lot of the people I know in New York who have been very successful came from the Midwest. And I thought, you know, they send kids off to fight wars including Croft. He graduated from Syracuse University with an eye on Madison Avenue. Then I got drafted, and then I ended up in Vietnam, and I decided I didn't want to be in advertising anymore. I wanted to be in journalism. Because when you were in the service, you were writing for Stars and Stripes. As a correspondent photographer for Stars and Stripes, which was the highest journalism job in the Army. And a great job. And you got to meet a lot of the network correspondents then. And I knew immediately that that's what I wanted to do. That's what I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. One striking part of Steve Croft's 30 years of 60 Minutes was his range. He set out to be a foreign correspondent, but overseas reporting accounted for only a fraction of his 500 stories. There was almost no category he couldn't or wouldn't handle. He dug into medicine and sports, finance and entertainment, authors and autocrats. If the story was good, he was up for telling it. Go! Sometimes way, way up. Other times way, way down. Or he'd venture into a minefield. I've got this adrenaline that's going through me. And I'm thinking to myself, is it this time? I hope it's not this time. No, well, I I know. So you throw, throw your punch. Croft searched out eccentrics. Oh, I would love to comment on some of that. Oh, it's unbelievable. And spoke with the most chilling. Do you consider yourself a serial killer? 
and the most quirky. The silence is so wonderful. Among them, America's last lord of the manor. Can you hear me now? I was in politics, so I can bellow. And the leather-clad first citizen of interior design. Would you think you're talking to a bright architect looking at a guy like me? Croft took a look into the life of spy-turned-spy novelist John le Carré. Each book feels like my last book, and then I think, like a dedicated alcoholic, that one more won't do me any harm. And explained the financial weapons of mass destruction behind the Great Recession. You took on the task of explaining really complicated economic swaps and secularizations and... (laughs) Securitization, derivatives, all of these things. Savvy investors figured out that the cheapest, most effective way to bet against the entire housing market was to buy credit default swaps. In effect, taking out inexpensive insurance policies that would pay off big when other people's mortgage investments went south. No one else would have even thought of writing those stories that you wrote. And you were able just to make it so understandable. I'm not an expert on that kind of stuff. So it had to be put into language that I understood that I thought I could explain. Have you done a lot of stories um, that, that ended up with change legislation or change rules or change the world? There's a story called The Insiders. Uh-huh. It was a story about insider trading in, uh, in Congress and the fact that there were no laws against it. So congressmen get a pass on insider trading. They do. If you are a member of Congress and you sit on the defense uh, committee, you are free to trade defense stock as much as you want to. If you're on the Senate Banking Committee, you can trade bank stock uh, as much as you want. And that regularly goes on. Croft reported how middle-class politicians became millionaires, profiting from inside information they learned on Capitol Hill, while a reform bill called the Stock Act languished in obscurity. Congressman? Congressman? We stood outside the Capitol and talked to congressmen who were coming up. Do you know anything about the Stock Act? I don't think so. Have you ever heard of the Stock Act? The what? Stock Act. Do you know anything about it? No. The Stock Act? After the story ran... Um, the bill was passed. Mm-hmm. But when, you, when you're working on stories like that, aren't you in a rage? Just furious? The injustice, the unfairness, Some of the, the times, sliminess. A lot of the times my reaction is, like, I can't believe, I can't believe this is going on. I can't believe that nobody has discovered it. Nobody has tried to put a stop to it. You know, I, I love stories that have a bit of absurdity to it. And my favorite stories are government stories where you say, you're not going to believe this is going on. It's been going on for a long time and nothing has ever been done about it. One of the stories you did that had a huge emotional impact was Bob Dole. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like it. In 1993, Bob Dole was the Senate Minority Leader and preparing a presidential run against Bill Clinton. When he was telling you about what happened to him in the war. Did you realize how badly you were wounded? No, I didn't. I didn't have have any idea. I just knew I couldn't get up. Did he break down? He did. I remember my dad coming up one Christmas. He had to stand all the way on the train. The trains were so crowded. Got up there, his ankles were swollen. stop the cameras. I think it's also self-assuring if you see somebody that loses control and you say, let's just stop the cameras and let them collect themselves. 
like yeah. sus. Yeah. And the, you need to be judicious at it. Too many times on television, it's just cheap. It's used as cheap emotion. Jailhouse lawyers are prisoners who... Croft took particular care with the in-studio introductions to his stories. His writing could be light and irreverent. Racially, he is half black, half white, and in terms of political experience, green. Or transform the potentially morbid into amusing. Dead celebrities can be just as lucrative as many live ones, and in some cases, a lot less trouble. He labored over every line of every script and then would rewrite his rewrites. Well into his 60s and 70s, Croft was pulling all-nighters like a college sophomore trying to make sure his term papers were always an A. It's not an easy process. People think you're a good writer. You just sit down and do it. It takes a lot of work, and all, it takes a lot of time to do it. And uh, well, to make it good. I heard that they would that the boss would approve your story. Done, wrapped, finished, and you'd get a whole new idea and start rewriting all over again after it had been approved. Um, I think mostly it was kind of like this is pretty good, you know. And I'd say, well, I'd like to run it through the typewriter one more time, and they'd say, all right. Yeah, in the middle of the night. In the middle of the night. <laughs> Come on, fess up. <laughs> yeah. It's not exactly. I mean, you're, I'm not disagreeing with the spirit of what you're saying. Okay. Because you're notorious for working very late at night. Very late. So normally at noon is about when I would get Start. started. I would get in the mood to write, and then, uh, uh, you know, hopefully I was out of there by... I sometimes we stayed till you know like four for a screening the next day four, four in the morning. Yeah. Well, but it was hard for you. Am I right? Yeah. I mean that. Well, eventually you read it. You eventually you come up with a hard deadline. Yeah, like seven p.m. on Sunday. <laughs> That's it. Usually before that. What about people you interviewed who completely surprised you? You thought they were going to be one thing. They turned out to be completely different. The one that immediately comes to mind was Clint Eastwood. I'm crazy. I did not think I was going to like him based on the kind of movies that he had made. He was a tough interview. He was sort of a tough interview, but the person was completely different. Okay, Axione. Didn't he just stare you down or you stared him down? Yeah, but that question was kind of like we said, we have to talk about, you know, all the wives and all of this stuff. And I thought, okay. So I tried to, like, frame the question in a way that it was likely not to get him really angry. Seven kids with five women, right? Not all of whom you were married to. No. He just reacted by just staring at me in silence. I don't think I've had anybody look at me like that before. It's a real Clint Eastwood look. Some of the most effective television, you know, everybody feels like everything has to be like no silence, you know. Like five seconds on television of silence is just like a, an eternity. How good is that? It's great. Croft had a way with celebrities and the famous when he chose to do them. What is the question? Which wasn't often. What is the most difficult part of your job? Besides dealing with people like me. One of my favorite stories was the Eagles. You know, they were together, they broke up, they had a singles career, they got back together, they broke up again. And um, Glenn Fry and Don Henley clearly did not like each other very much. We're in business together. And I think it was Fry that was talking and Henley's just like rolling his eyes. Like, <laughs> you, you got know, the this shot. Is so much BS. It's the one thing everybody remembered from the piece. <laughs> That's just silliness. Some people open up and let you see and do anything you want. 
Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas fit that category. This is what we spent our time doing. They still got it. <laughs> Do you, um... He's had a stroke. Can we stop? Oh, I'm sorry. We're ready to jump in with the paddle now. Those are really the ones that are the most fun because you get to see them over in different settings. Yeah. Samuel L. Jackson was like that. Yeah, like eight pages of stuff. <laughs> I know, man. I am not that interesting. <laughs> Dustin Hoffman was like that. This is stardom. This is what stardom gets you. This is pretty good. Yes. Tom Hanks was pretty much up for anything. Are you nervous now? Very nervous because you're here. I can remember doing a profile on Jerry Seinfeld. It was hilarious. It was hilarious because he was hilarious. Steve. Can I, can I call you Steve? <laughs> he liked being interviewed. He loved the idea of being on 60 Minutes because his mother was a big fan. And, and there wasn't anything you couldn't ask him. Well, there was one moment where you did ask him what could have been an embarrassing question. Do you think you're immature? Oh, yeah. Sexually? Yeah. Why? I am not going to talk about being sexually immature <laughs> on 60 Minutes. But you think you are. It's not 60 swinging minutes, you know. Right, right. Do you get up... Can we get some powder on my no, face? No. I'm sweating. God. And then you get people... This right. is off limits. This is off limits. Right. The most extreme example of that was Beyonce. It depends on where we are. <laughs> she controlled everything. Lift... <laughs> We had a couple of brief moments with her and uh, a short interview and a couple of walkthroughs, and that was it. They're going to probably show this on 60 Minutes, so can everybody go... <laughs> you know, when you told me you were going to leave, I thought of all the important things you had done for the show, and those stories that you wrote about the collateralization and all of that, you gave the show a dimension, an important dimension that we hadn't had before. Um, we're really going to miss you. Well, I'm going to miss you too, Leslie, but I'm not going to be a complete stranger. I'm going to be, you know, I'll, I'm, I'm sure I'll see you. But I'm saying something uh, not about personal. I mean, it's about your contribution over your 30 years to the show. That was huge. Um, you gave us depth. Uh, you You brought 60 minutes to places that no other television journalism could ever have gone without you and I think we still need it uh, and a lot of us are very unhappy that you're leaving Yeah. and we don't think that 74 is old some of us anyway <laughs> um, look I think it means a lot to me to hear you say that and um, um, the 60 minutes will be fine just fine We asked Steve Croft to pick out a favorite story we could show in full tonight. He picked his 2017 visit to the Isle of Egg. It's not only a beautifully written and visually stunning story, but appropriately, it's all about slowing down and appreciating the life well lived. Every now and then, just for the fun of it, we decide to go off to some obscure place that you've never heard of and are not likely to visit. Tonight, we're taking you to Egg, or the People's Republic of Egg, as it's jokingly referred to in Scotland, a country where half the privately held land is owned by fewer than 500 people. A lot of it is tied up in huge estates owned by lairds, who often run them as fiefdoms. 
20 years ago, after two centuries of servility, the people of Egg drove away their laird and seized control of their own destiny, establishing the first community-owned estate in Scotland's history. We wanted to see what they'd made of it. Just three miles wide, six miles long, and ten miles off the Scottish coast, Egg is part of the Inner Hebrides, surrounded by the Isles of Rum, Muck, and Skye at the edge of the North Atlantic. It's an ungroomed masterpiece of nature, too wild to tame. A craggy isle of incredible beauty, populated mostly by sheep and the dogs that keep track of them. The people do their best to stay clear while taking everything in. So what's your average day like? Some people would say very lazy. I like to think I just uh, make the hard work look easy. All depends on your outlook. Charlie Galley is the taxi driver on Egg and the only source of public transportation up and down the island's furrowed main artery. It's a niche he claimed for himself when he arrived from the mainland with his wife and this aging Volvo four years ago. Plenty of time to get the feel of the place. You know everybody on the island? I know them and their shoe sizes, and uh, like I say, there's no secrets on an island, so... So what are they talking about this week? Mainly you. It's not like they don't get visitors. 12,000 tourists came here last year, most of them to spend only a few hours. There are very few places to stay. We were going to be here for days, asking questions about Egg's quirky history. And everyone directed us to Maggie Fife, the island secretary, who landed here 41 years ago after touring Afghanistan in a camper. I never imagined that I would spend the rest of my life here. Does that mean you like it? Uh, I think so, yeah. (laughs) It was 1976, just after the entire island had been purchased by a wealthy English toff named Keith Schellenberg, who became the seventh Laird of Egg. Welcome to Egg. Under Scotland's feudal landlord system, he had absolute power over virtually every aspect of his estate. What kind of impact did he have on people's lives? He had that control over everything, and people, jobs, houses, and he wouldn't give anybody a lease on anything. By all accounts, Schellenberg used the island as his personal playground, lavishly entertaining guests and driving about in a 1927 Rolls-Royce while most of his tenants lived in poverty without electricity. Was there a rebellion? Eventually, yeah. It started with a slow burn that burst into flames one night in 1994, when Schellenberg's beloved Rolls-Royce met a fiery end, burnt to a crisp like a slice of bacon, under circumstances still unexplained. A mysterious fire, spontaneous combustion, who knows? So did you ever figure out what happened to the Rolls-Royce? No. Headline writers all over Britain couldn't believe their luck. There was scrambled egg, burnt rolls, and egg comes to the boil. It went on for a year until Schellenberg gave up, expressing his disdain for the islanders in this BBC interview. I think that my ultimate failure with egg is that I can't be bothered to try and get on with them anymore. His final act was to sell the island to a wacky German who called himself Maruma and claimed to be an artist of note and a professor. He turned out to be neither. Up to his beret and debt, Maruma stopped paying people's wages, and within two years, creditors put Egg up for auction. Maggie Fife and others thought 
Why not buy the island for ourselves? By the time we got to Maruma, and two years of somebody that was living in Stuttgart and had only visited for four days, it convinced everybody that we wouldn't have to do very much to do better than what he'd done, which was nothing. <laughs> no one in Scotland had ever tried a community buyout before. Certainly not 64 residents on a depressed, undeveloped island with no cash or credit. But lots of people were familiar with their story and fancied the idea of we folk taking on the big guys. In 1997, a public fundraising campaign brought in $2.5 million to close the deal. The funds came from 10,000 individual contributors and one huge check from an unknown woman. The bulk of the money came from... Um mystery benefactor. A mystery benefactor? Sounds like Dickens. It's a pretty crazy story, really. You don't know who she is? The only string attached was that she remained anonymous. She ever been to the island? Not as far as I know. Do you know why she did it? I think she's given money to a lot of what she regards as good causes, and we were lucky enough to be one of them. <laughs> that was 20 years ago. The Eggers and their friends marked the two decades of self-rule with a big blowout they call a Kaylee. With traditional music, dancing, and drink. We decided to cancel the next day's shoot to allow time for recovery, but 24 hours wasn't enough. What time did you leave the Kaylee? It's about 8 a.m. I think when we finally left. Yeah. How long did it take you to recover? Uh, probably tomorrow. Johnny Jobson first um, experienced egg in his 20s, working on a fishing boat as a scallop diver. Since then, a lot has changed. One, there is electricity now, which allowed him to move his wife and family here last year and edit a sports journal online from their tiny cottage. It's required some sacrifices, but they love the beauty of the place and its eccentricities. You look at the scenery or you'll see a pod of dolphins come through and you just remind yourself how lucky you are. You seem to have a lot of characters on this island. Yeah. Were they normal when they came here? Uh, um, yeah, not all of us. <sighs> Dean Wigan turned up in a kayak 14 years ago and he's still here. He's very good at fixing things. Jobs are extremely scarce, so you have to bring one with you or use your wits to invent one. It's one of those places that really gets into your soul, I think. It's quite enchanting. Sarah Bowden runs her uncle's sheep farm on egg. She grew up here, then left to work as a music journalist in London, where she met her future partner, Johnny Lynch, one of Scotland's most popular musicians. She coaxed him to egg. Did you think he was going to come? Not really. <laughs> no, because, yeah, I was living in a caravan at the time and, uh, yeah, it was all quite rustic. <laughs> yeah, you did look a bit shocked. <laughs> and Johnny's, you know, proper suburban city. What? Well, you're not a natural country boy, are you? If you mean I look after my nails, then, then yes, yes, I do. But, uh... Yeah, I knew from when, as soon as I got here, I couldn't really see a reason for me to go back and just look at me now. Look at you now. <laughs> see if you can spell it. When it comes to the essentials on egg, there is basically one of everything. 
one primary school for five students, one grocery shop where a hundred islanders all choose from the same food, and one pub at the tea room down by the wharf where the best beer is local. Stu McCarthy and Gabe McVarish, who are both married to women who grew up on egg, got so tired of drinking the mass-produced stuff from the mainland, they started their own mini microbrewery two years ago. So this is it. Is this legal? It's legal. It's legal. They make eight different brews, including I Am the Eggman, which is very popular with the tourists. They're just beginning to turn a profit, but say they've saved a lot of money drinking their own beer. Are you the biggest selling beer on egg? <laughs> Thankfully, yes. Yeah, we can say that. None of these younger people would be here without the island's tiny but unique power grid that runs almost entirely on renewable energy. A combination of wind, hydroelectric, and solar. The first time it's ever been accomplished anywhere. That is the biggest and most impressive project that we've done. It changed everything, right? Oh, yeah, it's made life so much easier. It was designed and funded with multiple grants, mostly from the European Union, and engineers from all over the world have come to study it. Like everything else on egg, it is run and maintained by revolving committees of islanders, the only visible sign of any sort of government. There are no offices, no court system, no police. Is there any crime on the island? There's no crime or anything. Never? Not that I can remember. Nobody's snatched something or... Borrow something or... They borrow it, and you'll get it usually within the week. You know, return to you kind of thing. You just don't know where it is at that point in time when, you know, when you're looking for it. But it will turn up again. It can't go anywhere. It's on an island, so, yeah. What happens if somebody gets sick? Well, you basically have to be sick on a Tuesday. A doctor comes from Sky on a Tuesday, you know, spends a day here. Uh, and that's, say, uh, sometimes weather permitting, if it's really rough in the winter time. Egg is dependent on boats for everything. When a ferry comes in with fuel and food, people flock to the wharf to help out. It's not a courtesy, it's a necessity on an island where everyone is more or less scraping by. To survive, they have to rely on each other, look after each other, and put up with each other. The island is too small for feuds or lingering resentments. What's the difference between people who live on the mainland and people who live on egg? Well, the people on egg, I'd have to say, are more evolved. Charlie Galley, the taxi driver and amateur philosopher, says most people here have done the whole life on the mainland thing and rejected it. They're all doing their hamster wheel thing, if you know. Hamster wheel? Yeah. You get a mortgage, you get a car, you get a job, you do this, that, and the next thing. And they all get so involved, they forget to look about them and see what's actually going on in life, you know. You should know egg is not always served sunny side up. As the days get shorter, the windy, rainy weather turns to sleet with gusts up to 100 miles an hour. The boats might not get through for a week, so people keep lots of beans and spam in the storeroom. Even the sheepdogs look forlorn. If you accidentally open your mouth and a gust of wind's coming, it involuntarily fills your lungs. You're like... <laughs> <laughs> to live here, you have to be resilient, self-sufficient, and patient. And not just with the sheep. The cows like to go down and lie on the beach, on the sand. And they'll all trail down the road, so you can't argue with a cow, you know. It wants to do what it wants to do, and you've just got to give it plenty of time, you know. 
There are no grand ambitions here and no discernible interest in development, despite the sea, the cliffs, and the vistas. The owners don't want hotels or a Donald Trump golf course or hundreds of new residents. I think we're looking for one or two at a time. I think that's how it works here. Then it works a lot better. And we've got time to get used to new people. (laughs) We would have liked to stay longer in this stress-free, non-conflict zone where everyone seems to be more or less on the same page. But we were out of clean laundry, we had a ferry to catch, and hamster wheels to jump back onto. As for the people of Egg, I don't think they were sad to see us go. Before we left Steve Croft and his wife, author Jenny Conant, at their home on Long Island, he told us he had one final piece of company business to conduct. Um, I left the building without turning in my badge. <laughs> my ID. Will you turn well, it in for me? It's security. <laughs> Be happy to. God, you look good. I'm Leslie Stahl. Most of us will be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes.